Good. <laughs> Father, we turn our hearts to you as we open up Scripture. Scripture is so powerful because you've embedded your wisdom in this Word. We treat it as the Word of God, as Jesus did. So give Holy Spirit, please, intelligence, wisdom, insight to each of us as we explore Scripture together today. Amen. Amen. I'm giving each of these, the, the, the whole series is called Living for God in Godless World, and that was last week's title. Every other week now gets its own title as well, okay, on the way through. And today is Pressure and Promotion. Pressure and Promotion. In chapter 1 we saw how Daniel and three other teenagers had been taken, they were from the elite, from the royal family, had been taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, about eight years later Ezekiel and some few thousand more were taken captive and then after that, 10, 12 years after that, then the whole of the captivity took place, that, that Jerusalem was destroyed, that all the people were exiled. And uh, then the people in exile wrote things like this in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon there we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our lyres on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs, our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of your songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on a foreign land? That's the context of these passages. In Babylon, Daniel and his three friends, which were Hananiah, As uh, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, got it right, um, were selected to be trained to join the king's advisors. And as that process began, I, Daniel asked with his friends to be excused from eating the, meat, eating the meat and drinking the wine which came from the Lord's table, which had also come from the pagan temple. It was food and drink that had been offered to the idols in, by pagan worship. They came through that test of faith, excelled at their studies and were admitted to the inner circle of the court. Let me just remind you of a few headlines from last Sunday. I think that might be worth doing week by week. We too are not living in a Christian land. This is not Christendom. We're living in Babylon or even Sodom and Gomorrah. To live for God in a godless world, we must understand where we are, but also who we are. We are the children of God in a godless world. We are lights in a dark place. Yeah. It's not our job to criticize and condemn. No. It's ours to refuse to conform to this world. Hallelujah. Daniel came to prominence not by serving the king's God, but by serving his God. We too can succeed with the Lord's help in a godless world without selling out to that world. And if we may not succeed, we will still stand for the Lord with his help. Every stand for truth and conscience makes us stronger. But every compromise makes us weaker. Yes. So today, Daniel 2. It's a long chapter. I'm going to need to read it to you, but we'll read and talk and read and talk. First of all, the king had a dream. Daniel 2, verse 1 to 3. I'm not putting all the scriptures on the screen because that slows me down. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, which is another kind of group of wise people, to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. This may have been the early hours of the morning. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. 
Okay, let's just stop there a minute. The Lord caused Nebuchadnezzar to dream, but the, left, the dream left him so disturbed, he determined he must have the dream interpreted. Now, I think very good commentators like John Calvin, who suggest that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten his dream, are wrong. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Interestingly, from chapter 2, verse 4, to chapter 7, verse 8 of Daniel, the book is written not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic, which is the language of the Syrians. Anyway, then chapter 2, verse 4, the, Chal the Chaldeans spoke, this is this whole group of wise men, spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Which seems reasonable. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be cut in pieces and your houses will be made an ash heap. In other words, they'll be burned down. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see my decision is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. You notice how firm he is on this. He's setting them a test. He knows they're scoundrels. He knows they're going to flim-flam. So he just won't have it. No, dream and interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king it's king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer or a Chaldean. It's a difficult thing, the king requests, and there is no one, no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. See, Nebuchadnezzar would know they'd heard from somewhere the gods or even God when he didn't tell them a dream and they, they knew what it was. He's setting a, a high bar for them. He knew that a lot of their soothsaying and prophesying was hot air, jargon. It's as if he wanted to make sure that only God or the gods, because he's still a pagan, remember, would give the answer to him through these men. They tell him it's impossible. No one can do that except the gods and they don't dwell with flesh. But we know God does dwell with flesh. He does give his help to his people. Phil Moore, who, when I used to watch Twitter, which I don't nowadays, but anyway, he, when he was reading through Daniel day by day, he'd put a, you know, when, Twitter, when tweets were 140 characters, he just, every day, put something about a chapter of Daniel. He wrote this some years ago. Now, religions say, it's difficult that gods don't be with us. The gospel says, it's been made easy. God has become one of us. The living God does indeed dwell with men. So the wise man has said, oh, we, we can't do that. It's impossible, you know, dear king, live forever. But, you know, we can't do that. For this reason, the king threatened them. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out. Notice this. And they began killing the wise men. They'd started the executions. And they sought Daniel 
and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Ariok, the king, captain of the king's guard, who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? So Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. Now, get the picture here. Some people have already met a bloody violent death. And next in line, they've turned up where Daniel and his friends are. Daniel says, oh, wait a minute. And questions the king's guard. I mean, that was courage, wasn't it? He persuades Ariok to stand by while he goes and sees the king. These, these are men with swords and weapons. Where's he going? He's going to the king. What do we do? Wait. It's daring stuff, but Daniel's life is at risk anyway, isn't it? Daniel goes to the king. Verse 16. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Give me time and I'll come back with the answer. Now that is faith. Yeah? He hasn't got a clue what the dream is. Has he? No. Not, a, not an inkling. Give me time and I'll come back with the answer. Boldly asking for time. This is a statement of faith. E.J. Young, one of the commentators, says... Uh, so I did put on scripture. Under ordinary circumstances, Daniel might have been filled with terror, but he's convinced that the Spirit of God is with him. Men of deep faith, women too, ladies, are bold. This is saying from Ernest Hemingway, who I never believed was a believer. I don't think he was a believer. But this is a good comment from him. Courage is grace under pressure. Courage is not bravado, machismo. Courage is grace knowing who you are, child of God, under pressure. Why did the king grant Daniel's request? Simple answer, because God was at work. God's working something out here. So Daniel, having said something in faith, and I'm not denying that, he boldly said to the king, give me time, I'll come back, you'll have the answer. Goes back to see his three friends, whose names I will not repeat in case I get them wrong this time. <laughs> we know the pagan names better, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel and his friends pray. Verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the decisions known, decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Thank you, Scripture. You've given me to. That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven. That's a nice understatement, isn't it? Their lives depend on getting this answer. Tomorrow they're dead, probably. I think Daniel probably asked for a day, or even the rest of the night. They've got a few hours in which to get an answer, or they die. They sought mercies from the God of heaven, concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his friends might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel had spoken in faith. Now he and his friends needed to pray in faith that what he'd said would be fulfilled, that God would give him the answer. We see the same thing with Elijah. Elijah 
uh, firstly declared it wouldn't rain until he said so. And he said that by the word of the Lord. But Scripture also tells us he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. Now, did he do that before he said or after? We're not told. But the praying and the saying belong together. Three years later, the same Elijah is speaking to the same king and says, okay, king, prophets of Baal are all dead. Now the rain's going to come. Go on, get on, get on with your journey because the rain's going to overtake you and it's going to get muddy and messy. So get on, get on down the road. Pretty audacious. Then he goes up a mountain with his servant and he puts his head between his knees and prays. And he says to the servant, anything happening? No, no, sky's all blue. Praise. Anything? No, no. Praise. Seven times until there is a cloud as big as a man's hand on the horizon. And Elijah says, I'm making it up really, but he says something like this. It's good enough for me. Come on, let's go. The rain's coming. Saying and praying belong together. There can be no saying in faith without praying in faith. That's where many people go wrong today. They make prophesying a substitute for praying. You can't just say stuff. It's about seeking God as well. The two belong together, completely connected, and a prophetic life needs to be a prayerful life. And a prophetic person needs to be a prayerful person because they belong together. They're part of the same work of the Spirit. In some cases, the praying comes after the saying and sometimes the other way around. But only God can make words that have been declared, even if he gave those words, come about. We have no power to make things happen. Only he does. And people misunderstand the words of Jesus when he says, whatever you say will happen. If he believes that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Here's the context. I haven't put this up on the screen. It's Mark 11, in 21. Peter remembering, Jesus cursed a fig tree. They're on the way back from Jerusalem sometime later. Next day, same day, next day. It doesn't matter when. But, and he says, look, Rabbi, look, that fig tree you cursed is withered. And they Ask him in one of, the, one of the other Gospels, not Mark, how did you do that? And he says, by faith. They really should have asked him, why did you do that? But that's another question. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Next verse. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray... Believe you receive them and you will have them. The praying and the saying belong together. You only say to the mountain when you've prayed about the mountain and God's given you the authority to say to the mountain and the faith to do it, right? And just in case you think, oh, well, I've got it, he's praying. And then he says, by the way, there may be a hindrance to your prayers. All right? Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Because unforgiveness will hinder your prayers. So if you've got a mountain, make sure there's no hindrance to your praying. Pray. When whatever God says to you, go and do it or say it. All right? That's what Jesus says there. Not whatever silly thought comes in your head, you've only got to say it out loud and it's going to happen. That is not what Jesus said. Okay. What some people people say about decreeing and declaring is not what Scripture says, not what Jesus said at 
all. Go back to Daniel and his friends, please, David. So the four young Jewish men pray into the night. They're praying for their very lives. During that night, the Lord gives Daniel not a dream, because he wasn't asleep, but a vision. He saw the dream play out, and he understood its meaning. And I want you to notice the first thing that Daniel did when that happened. He says this. The scripture says this. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. His first response was Godward. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. I want you to say those words with me. Wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. Now listen to this. You have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Feel more again. Daniel thanks and praises God before Nebuchadnezzar even confirms that he said correctly. Faith worships God before proof arrives. Twice in that prayer there's this phrase, wisdom and might. Wisdom and might are his and wisdom and might have been given to me or given to us. The Lord of all wisdom and might gives some of his wisdom and might to Daniel or to us. We don't have it all, but we have what we need from his hand. This might is not physical might. It's not strong. It's not armor. It's not weapons. It's not military and soldierly. It isn't that Daniel and his friends found some swords and slew the guards. You know, It's not that kind of might. It's authority. It's authority. And the words might and power in the Bible are not really about strength and energy. They're about authority. God gives us authority to take, in particular situations, to take a stand, to take hold, to take responsibility, to stop something or make something else happen, to reshape the moment, to rechannel events. God rules in all events, in all places, in all time. He's sovereign. But he gives us authority to rule at that moment. Under his authority. I, under authority to him, can under rule. I have the deposit of his authority to make something happen or make something start. He gives us authority in particular times for his good purpose to be fulfilled. And he gave Daniel wisdom and authority in this crisis, for that's what it was. Meanwhile, the king's counselors are only under a temporary stay of execution. The killing squad was still standing by. So Daniel returns to the king. Daniel 2, verse 24 to 30. Therefore Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I'll tell the king the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. There's a bit of false boasting there by Ariok, wasn't it? I found somebody, Lord, you know. Oh, come off it. 
Daniel addresses the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, his name was Belteshazzar in the pagan language there. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians and soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Just make the point, didn't, they couldn't do it. This was beyond the power of men. Next verse. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Latter days doesn't mean the end of time altogether. It just means after his time. We've been living in the last days since Jesus came, by the way. They're not the last days aren't about to start. When Jesus came as Messiah, this is the last age of humanity. It's the last age of the world. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you're in your bed about what would come to pass after this. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, when I go, what's going to happen to this kingdom? Maybe that was his thought and then God showed him this thing. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me... Now, Daniel's talking about how he came to this knowledge. This secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, in other words, he's speaking for himself and his friends there, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Daniel doesn't go straight into relating the dream and the interpretation. He firstly takes time to honour the Lord. Feel more again. God loves to use people who've grasped one simple principle. I can't, but God can. There's a God in heaven who reveals secrets, who reads and knows the thoughts of our hearts, who views our dreams, who sees our daydreams. When it's for our good, he may, may reveal one or more of our secrets to someone else, who on God's behalf will speak to us and help us to deal with that hidden thing. There's nothing secret to God. And I'm not the first one to say, in the long run, in the longest run, there are no secrets. Here's the dream. Daniel relates it to the king. You, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image, big statue. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. That's not American English, that's British English. <laughs> this image's head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, but its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff, which the summer Threshing floors blows, and the wind carries them away so that no trace of them was found. When you thrash wheat, you don't do it nowadays, they're in machines, but you throw the wheat and the straw into the air and you do it in the wind so the wind carries away the dust and carries away the straw and the heavier wheat grains fall to the ground. That's the chaff being blown away. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Let me just give you some pictures for illustration. Gold head, silver arms and chest, bronze 
abdomen and thighs and then iron legs with clay feet. That whole image then, you don't need to read all the description, I'll tell you those in a minute. A stone is thrown, cast at the feet of the image and the whole thing crumbles into dust. Thanks, Colin. Okay, so now, says Daniel, I will tell you the interpretation of the dream. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he's given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over all. You are this head of gold, which I think had Nebuchadnezzar going. <laughs> but after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be divided, yet the strength of the iron will be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong, partly fragile. In this mixture they will mingle with the seed of men, and they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, that last empire, in the days of that last kingdom or empire. Listen to this. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom of kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Some people say the God of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. No, they're not. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. The God of heaven will set up his kingdom. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. I guess an amen from me, don't you? Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of a mountain without hands and it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. It would happen after Nebuchadnezzar but not at the end of time, after his time. The dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. Four kingdoms will come after Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian kingdom, in fact, which Nebuchadnezzar's father, said last week, started, came and went within Daniel's lifetime. It only lasted 70-odd years, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Yet that empire was glorious. They're still finding evidence of things that were, for years, kind of just legends. The hanging gardens of Babylon 
one of the wonders of the world. They built huge aqueduct, aqueducts that delivered not just little streams of water into their city, but like a whole river. They put a whole river down an aqueduct into their city, you know, and out the other side. Extraordinary, glorious uh, architecture that has never repeated. But that was defeated by the Medo-Persians and the Persian Empire, lasting 200 odd years. But then the Persian Empire fell to the empire that was founded by Alexander the Great, who the Greeks say to like to say was Greek, but actually he was from further north. He was from, whether it was Greek Macedonia or the Macedonia that it now exists as a nation, we can't tell, but he came from up there, from northern Greece, from a kingdom that was known as the kingdom of Macedonia at that time, not the kingdom of Greece. That lasted into just beyond the Roman Empire, which kind of grew alongside of it and then overthrew it. And the Roman Empire lasted from 27 BC until the 400s AD. But the kingdom of God came in and destroyed all those kingdoms. Who's the king of the kingdom of God? King Jesus. He's the stone cut out without human hands. There's a thread in scripture of the Lord being a rock, a stone, a cornerstone, a rock of offense, a rock of stumbling. How many people today from various backgrounds are still offended by the message that Jesus is Messiah and Lord? He died on a cross. God raised him from the dead. He's made him king over all creation. They stumble over a rock. And Jesus himself said, when you stumble over a rock, the rock then crushes you to pieces. <laughs> the rock doesn't just sit there. It rolls back over you and you're crushed. This stone or rock crushes every authority, overcomes every human power. The Lord permits human governors including some very strange ones, but can cast them down in a moment whenever he sees fit to do so. Kingdoms come and go, empires all eventually fail and fall, but the kingdom of God goes on until it fills the whole earth. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It will consume all kingdoms and last forever. All the prophecies of Daniel count down to the first coming of Jesus Messiah. Get this, we'll get back to it some weeks' time. This is not about the second coming, it's about Jesus' first coming. The countdown is to him coming as Messiah and being cut off and having nothing, but still founding his kingdom. The king so honours the God of Daniel. Notice this, 2 verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrated himself before Daniel. How many kings do that to one of their servants? He gone on his face, stretched out his hands at the feet of Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him, which Daniel just had to let happen, let it go. Then the king spoke to Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal these secrets. Now that sounds almost like a confession of faith, doesn't it? He's not there yet, though. Wait till chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see that by God's severe mercy, Nebuchadnezzar does get there. He becomes a believer. He confesses his faith in Yahweh. Then the king promotes Daniel, but this promotion comes at the end of what? The other P word at the beginning? Pressure. How much pressure? Your life's in danger. Life and death. How much pressure is that? 
And yet by faith, Daniel dealt with it. Grace of God, under pressure, produced courage. Spoke in faith, prayed like crazy <laughs> into the night. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon. Now, let me explain a bit about empires there, okay? Um, not just the British one, but anyone. You've got the emperor and his capital city and his court, yes? And then they've got the homeland, you know, which in the, you know, the empire in, in Roman times would have been Rome and Italy, the homeland, you know? And then you've got all the other lands and all the other peoples. And this, that's how it was here. There was Babylon and there were all the other nations and all the other lands. And D Daniel is given the job of being like the prime governor, the prime minister of the homeland the province of Babylon. The king will rule in the court, he'll rule in the palace, but Daniel will rule the homeland. That's the idea. And chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. He gets to be governor of the whole crew. But Daniel petitioned the king. Daniel responded and said, um, excuse me king, would you please set and I'm paraphrasing here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over Babylon, province, and not me. He asked the king to appoint his three friends as co-governors co of the homeland while he stayed with the king. And so that's what happened. The king heard the petition and appointed those over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and Daniel sat in the gate of the king. He was the gateway to the king. Whoever came in, whoever came out, he dealt with the affairs of the king. Daniel's courage to speak up to Phil Moore again. This is Daniel's courage to speak up for God at work. And it's this, this is the application coming. He spoke up for God at work, led to honor, influence, promotion, and evangelistic influence. So we should speak up too. One more practical application here. It's Here's the headline. In God's providence, his good plan and purpose, pressure often comes before promotion. The Lord knows what he plans for us, but we must go through a time of testing to arrive there. The trouble gauge rises. There may be a crisis. We find ourselves in tribulation. It's not, un it's not comfortable. But these times should be expected. The Lord Jesus told us about them. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not many people want to write that on a promise box or you know, postcard to give out at a lady's breakfast. In the world, you will have tribulation. But cheer up. I have overcome the world. I'll carry you through it. I'll lead you through this trouble. The process of growth in faith will include pressure before promotion. And you can't short-circuit it by prophesying it away. It just, just doesn't happen. We overcome it by praying and enduring. and we, Therefore, we inherit by promise. There's pressure before breakthrough. 
very often because it provokes us to faith. It provokes us to prayer, to seek God, to hang on to God, to come through it with God. And I've quoted Isaiah many times before. God doesn't say, don't worry, I'll get you out of the flood, I'll get you out of the fire. He says, when you're in the flood, I'll be with you. I'll carry you through. There's a through, not, I'll get you out of there, watch out for the helicopter. It's, I'll take you through. That's the promise of God. We want to, get me out of here. And God says, I'm over here, come on. Going through, we're coming through this. One more thing. Promotion came to Daniel, yet he declined much of it. I'll make you governor of Babylon province. And he went, no, can you, would, you, would you give that to my mates? I'd rather, they had to, I'd rather they did that. And the king heard him and said, okay. Ruler of, the gov- ruler of the province of Babylon sounds a lot better than chief administrator, doesn't it? If you were looking for a job description and someone said, you can be ruler or you can be chief administrator, well, I'll be ruler. Whoa. Daniel turned it down. Daniel declined it. There are three things that may have been in Daniel's mind about why he declined the king's kind offer. The first thing I think is the most important one. I think he knew that he'd been placed by the Lord in the royal court to be close to the king, to speak truth to power, as we say. So he asked that his friends be given that honor responsibility because he needs to remain in that strategic position. Now that wisdom surely came from the Lord. That was in Daniel's heart. Secondly, he may believe that his friends would be safer away from the royal palace. And if that's what he thought, we'll see in the next chapter, I mean, he was very sadly wrong about that. But he may also have thought that the three of them together would be better together to stand in faith. And if he thought that, then he was definitely right. Not every promotion that is offered to us in this world is for our good or for the good of others. I turned down job, business, financial opportunities in the past because they weren't for the good, for my good, for the family's good, or for the kingdom of God. We need to discern and choose and understand what is God's good purpose for us. Romans 12, verse 1 to 3, begin. So Daniel's three friends go to provincial duties, but he stays at the royal court as chief advisor. We'll see next time in Faith in the Furnace. That's the headline for next week. Those three face an incredible test of faith. Daniel isn't even there. He's still in the palace. Daniel here, by the way, saved not just the lives of himself and his three friends. He saved the whole of the, almost all, of the wise men of Babylon. In further crises, Daniel's friends have to stand alone, and then Daniel, more than, on more than one occasion, has to stand alone. The three friends together, sorry, Daniel's friends have to learn. But the most severe test is a great deal later, the lion's den. Daniel's in his 80s when that happens. He's in his 80s when that happens. And in between, decades have gone. I mean, he's a teenager when this dream is happening. He's in his 80s then. What happens in between? Do you know what? I thought, this is just my thought. The wise men of Babylon 
left him alone for decades until probably they'd all died out. They knew their lives had been saved by him and the grace of God that was upon him. They were in his debt the rest of their lives. It was perhaps only when a new generation rose up that they challenged Daniel when he was in his 80s. For us this morning, God develops us in faith towards him through his word, through prayer. Faith includes obedience, by the way. Through prophecy, fellowship, other means of grace, but also through times of pressure, times of difficulty. We can't pick and choose between those things. They all form part of his training and equipping for us, for our own destiny, for our future glory. Our example in the end, by the way, is not even Daniel, but the Lord Jesus himself. You know, the, the two words in English rhyme, faith and safe. And yes, we're saved by grace, but that doesn't mean we live an entirely safe life. Right? You're saved from the wrath of God. You're saved from condemnation. You're saved from your sins. But that doesn't mean that our expectation of life is to be really cosy, really comfortable, everything's easy. Float through life. Somebody said, you know, life isn't a bed of roses. Last time I checked, roses had thorns. I'm not sure where that comes from. Bed of roses. <laughs> rose petals, maybe. Roses. No. Don't put me. No, no. Bed of roses, man. People think that being a Christian is like the gateway into having it all easy. Where on earth did they get that idea from? Well, false teaching for a start. What believer in the Bible had that? Tell me. What believer in the Bible had it? All easy, all comfortable, all the time. Nobody. Nobody. In Bible history and in church history, there are times for individuals and for communities and churches of rest and peace. We read one about, about one in Revelation. They had trouble, tribulation. Then they had a time of rest and peace. Then it came back again. But there are times of trouble and of distress. Now think of Psalm 23. All right? You all know Psalm 23, don't you? Yeah. Let me read it to you. Sorry, I'm taking another minute to do so. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even... Stop there. Okay, so far, so good. I'll have help with that. Verse 4. Even when I go through the darkest valley, the shadow of death, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's not safe. That's being saved. That's being helped by the Lord through a very, very, very difficult time. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me. Oh, sit down and eat. In the presence of my enemies. What? I'm surrounded by enemies. That's the mixture of life, folks. That's how it is. We may not experience trouble for a time, but trouble will come again. It's in the unsafe places that we experience even more of the Lord keeping us, defending us, feeding us, and supporting us. 
Okay, here's a headline, just a picture, I like this. Great things never came from comfort zones. I didn't make it up. I just borrowed it off the internet. I like it. Great things never came from comfort zones. If we want it all easy and cosy, we may may be avoiding pressure that is actually part of God's plan to prepare us for something more. What is prepared at the end of that test. We step up. We're promoted. We make advance. We go forward, having come through by the grace of God. He plans and prepares... Our greatest good, but his path for us will often be testing. One scripture to finish, then we'll break bread. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. A couple of verses from 1 Peter. You, don't need my notes for this, you are being kept by the power of God through faith. I might add there, through troubles, Mm. (laughs) through whatever, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, in this salvation, this grace of God. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. It's a trial because God allows it to test your faith. That the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's not the only scripture that speaks about the trials of faith in in that language. James does as well, and Paul does too. Let's pray together. Lord, deliver us from false expectations of this life. For we do live in a wicked world. And we will experience times of difficulty and trouble. But Lord, you are our shepherd, our keeper. You can carry us through whatever it is that we face. You can strengthen us and help us, supply us, march us through a dry desert, take us through floods of water, lead us through a fire from one side to the other. All because you are the God above all gods, the ruler of heaven. We pray for the same kind of faith that Daniel had in this great God. We ask that we will not See your grace just as something that forgives us for getting things wrong, but that equips us and strengthens us to trust you, to come through, to deal with the bit of authority you give us necessary for the task, to deal under your authority with real authority to get things straight, to straighten things out, to put them to order, to bring them to your wisdom. Wisdom and might are yours, Lord. But again and again, in particular moments and crises, you give us, from your own heart, wisdom and might. That we might live out 
this great privilege of being your children and changing the bit of the world that we connect to. And let me just say again this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, in a week or two, two or more weeks, we're going to look at when Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. Here he's, he's beginning to get it. And you've been maybe beginning to get it for a while. Let me just draw that comparison. Do you understand? Oh, yeah, God is God. Do you understand that God calls you to know Him personally, as a reality, as a living God through Jesus, His Son? It's not just about finding out a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. There, there must come a moment at which you become alive in knowing God through Jesus. Why don't you ask Him for that this morning? Why don't you ask him to bring that moment, that time, make it happen in you? We'll see it happening to Nebuchadnezzar through some, what we will call, severe mercy. Why don't you ask him today? Just take a moment and pray, Lord Jesus, please, make me alive to faith, to trusting God, to knowing God through you. Amen. We're going to break bread together. So, oh, and children need to be checked in. Back 